Chapter 5 of The Cruise of the Alert in Search of Treasure by E. F. Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 Our First Voyage. Our preparations were hurried on at Southampton, and I was never left in peace, but was in a condition of perpetual work and travel, my sole relaxation being the frequent farewell dinners given to myself and my companions by our friends and sympathizers and very jolly as these dinners were they were relaxations in the other sense of the term rather than reposeful amusements for a weary man some of them were arduous undertakings our expedition interested the southampton people a good deal and all wished us well but i do not think many thought that we should be successful in realizing our fortunes on trinidad at last all was ready for our departure when to my considerable disgust just as we were about to put to sea two of the volunteers suddenly found themselves prevented from going with us i forthwith telegraphed to others on my list of applicants and at the very last moment received telegrams from two gentlemen who were willing to join at this short notice when their messages arrived all my crew and other companions were on board comfortably settled down having bidden their farewells and done with the shore so I thought it prudent to send them away from Southampton, where the alert was perpetually surrounded by boatfuls of visitors, to the seclusion of the little bay under Calshot Castle at the mouth of Southampton Water. Here they would be out of the way of temptation, as there are no buildings save the Coast Guard Station. Therefore, on the evening of August 28, 1889, the alert sailed slowly down to Calshot, and came to an anchor there, while I waited in Southampton until the following morning, with the object of securing my new volunteers as soon as they should arrive, and carrying them down to the yacht. The said volunteers turned up early on August 29th. Then, with a party of some of my old Southampton friends, we steamed down the river on a launch which had been very kindly placed at our disposal for the purpose by the Isle of Wight Steamboat Company, Mr. Pickett, of course, would have nothing to do with work in his yard on that day. He took a holiday and came down to see the last of us. We were now all on board, but finding that some of the fresh stores, such as vegetables and bread, had not yet arrived, we postponed our departure until the following day. In the meanwhile, we were not idle. We sent a boat to the Hamble River to fill up those breakers that had been emptied. We got our whaleboat on deck and secured it, and, in short, made all ready for sea. On the following day, the Isle of Wight boat, while passing, left the missing stores with us. Then Mr. Pickett's sloop sailed down with some friends who had determined to bid us even yet another last farewell. And, after dinner, we weighed anchor and were off, while the friends on the sloop and the crew of a yacht, which was brought up near us, gave us hearty goodbye and British cheers. But our anchor had not yet had its last hold of English mud, and we were not to lose sight of the Solent that day, for in consequence of some clumsiness, possibly too much zeal on the part of those who were catting the anchor, the bowsprit whisker on the starboard side was doubled up, so we had to proceed to cows and bring up there while we sent the iron on shore to be put in the fire and straightened again. However, this did not delay us much, for it fell a flat calm which lasted through the night, we were better off sleeping comfortably at anchor than we should have been drifting helplessly up and down with the tides. At 11 a.m. the next morning, it being high water, we weighed anchor and were really off at last, 
the weather glorious and hot but the wind light and variable for weeks while we had been lying off southampton the weather had been detestable blusterous northwest winds accompanied by heavy rains prevailing but now very opportunely for us a complete change set in just as we started and it was evident that we were at the commencement of a long spell of settled fine weather i had anticipated this luck for i knew by experience that the last weeks of august and the first weeks of september are the most favorable for a voyage south across the bay for then there generally comes a period of moderate easterly winds and warm weather which precedes the stormy season of the equinox thus when i sailed in the falcon at this very time of the year i was fortunate enough to carry a northeast wind all the way from southampton into the northeast trades and i was confident that we were destined to do something of the sort now nor was i disappointed we got outside the needles and the wind being light from west to southwest we tacked very slowly down the channel always in sight of the english coast until nightfall when the wind dropped altogether and we lay becalmed in sight of portland lights it was our first saturday night at sea august thirty first so we kept up the good old fashion of drinking to our wives and sweethearts at eight o'clock we never neglected this sacred duty on any saturday night during the whole cruise a light air from the east sprang up at night but though we now had a racing spinnaker and topsail on the vessel we made little progress and it seemed as if we could not lose sight of the lights of portland throughout the following day september first the same far too fine weather continued with light airs from various directions alternating with calms but we did at last contrive to get out of sight of land this day portland to our delight became invisible and we saw no more of the english coast this calm weather was trying to the patience but it was perhaps well for us to have this experience at the commencement of the voyage for it enabled the raw hands to settle down to their work quickly and there was but little seasickness on board at midday september second we were off the chops of the channel a fresh easterly wind that lasted some hours having carried us so far then the wind fell again and we sailed on in a very leisurely fashion until the morning of september fifth when being well in the middle of the bay of biscay the wind which was from the southeast began gradually to freshen first we were going five knots through the water then seven and by midday we were traveling between eight and nine in the afternoon the wind increased to the force of a moderate gale and the sea began to rise during the night some rather high seas rolled up after us occasionally so that we had to bear away and run before them and only the old hands could be entrusted with a tiller we passed finisterre on this night but were too far off to see the lights and now we had done with the bay of biscay which had certainly treated the alert with great consideration and not shown us any of its proverbial bad temper the wind had gone down by midday on the sixth and the run for the previous twenty-four hours was found to have been one hundred fifty-eight miles from this date we kept up a fair average speed though our voyage could not be termed a smart one for there was scarcely a day on which we were not retarded by several hours of calm while going down the channel we had kept watch and watch in the usual sea fashion the first mate taking one watch and myself the other but now that we were out at sea clear of all danger it became unnecessary to continue this somewhat wearisome four hours up and four hours down system 
so we divided ourselves into three watches, the second mate taking the third watch. This gave the men an eight hours rest, below at a stretch, instead of only four. As we had three paid hands in addition to the cook, one of these was allotted to each watch. But before reaching South American coast, the second mate resigned his post, and we reverted to the watch and watch system again, which was observed until the termination of the cruise. A good deal of useless form was kept up at this early stage of the voyage. A log slate was suspended in the saloon, and each officer, as he came below, would write up a full account of all that had occurred on his watch. The most uninteresting details were minutely chronicled, only to be rubbed off the slate each midday, and I think there was a little disappointment expressed because I would not copy all of these down in my logbook. Had I done so, that logbook would have been a dreadful volume to peruse. To us, however, the log slate was a source of great amusement on account of its utter fallaciousness. The patent log was, of course, put overboard when we were making the land, but when we were out at the ocean and no land was near us, we naturally did not take the trouble to do this, neither did we make use of the common log ship or keep a strict dead reckoning. But despite this, the officer of a watch would religiously jot down the exact number of knots and furlongs he professed to have sailed during each of his four hours on duty. He did not even try to guess the distance to the best of his ability. He was fired with an ambition to show the best record for his watch. So he would first scan the slate to see how many knots the officer just relieved boasted to have accomplished and then he would unblushingly write down a slightly greater number of miles as a result of his own watch, quite regardless of any fall in the wind or other retarding cause. Thus, if five knots an hour had been made in one watch, five and a quarter would probably be logged for the next and five and a half for the next. Sometimes there was a flat calm throughout a watch, and then the ingenious officer though he could not help himself and was compelled to write himself down as zero before three of the hours, would compensate for this by putting down a big number in front of that hour during which he imagined that all the individuals of his rival watches were fast asleep below, and would boldly assert in explanation that just then he had been favored with a strong squall to help him along. No one put any confidence in this mendacious slate, which soon became known on board as the competition log, and inspired our wits with many merry quips. The distance made in each 24 hours as recorded by the competition log was about 50% greater than that calculated from the observations of the sun. At last, on the morning of September 13th, having been 14 days at sea, and having accomplished a voyage of something under 1,500 miles, we knew that we were in the close vicinity of the salvages, and a sharp lookout for land was accordingly kept. We had seen nothing but water round us since leaving Portland Bill, and all on board were excited at the prospect of so soon discovering what manner of place was this desert treasure island of which we had been talking so much. The salvages lie between Madeira and the Canaries, being 160 miles from the former and about 85 from Tenerife. Vessels avoid their vicinity, especially at night, on account of the dangerous shoals that surround them. The description of the group in the North Atlantic Memoir is as follows. Quote, the salvages consist of an island named Ilha Grande, or the Great Salvage, a larger island named Great Piton, 
and a smaller one called the Little Piton, together with several rocks. The great salvage lies in latitude 30 degrees 8 minutes, longitude 15 degrees 55 minutes. It is of very irregular shape, and has a number of rocks about it within a distance of a mile. It is much intersected, and has several deep inlets, the most accessible of which is on the east side. It is covered with bushes, amongst which the thousands of sea-fowl make their nests. It is surrounded on all sides with dangers, most of which show, but many require all caution in approaching. The Great Piton lies at the distance of eight and a quarter miles west-southwest, three-quarter west from Isla Grande. This islet is two and three-eighths miles long, and has a hill or peak near its center. The Little Piton lies at a mile from the western side of the former, and is three-quarters of a mile long. Both are comparatively narrow. These isles are seated upon and surrounded by one dangerous rocky bank, which extends from the western side of the little isle half a league to the westward. The southern part of the Great Piton appears green, its northern part barren. It may be seen five or six leagues off. The little Piton is very flat and is connected to the south point to the greater one by a continued ledge of rocks. The whole eastern side of the Great Piton is rocky and dangerous. End quote. A light northeast trade wind was blowing, and we were running before it at a fair rate through the smooth water, with topsail and racing spinnaker set. It was a glorious morning, with but a few clouds in the sky, and those were of that fleecy, broken appearance that characterizes the regions of the trade winds. At 8.30 a.m., the man on the lookout at the cross-trees sang out, Land right ahead, sir. Yes, no doubt about it. There it was, still several leagues off a faint blue hill of rugged form on the horizon. We had made an excellent landfall. While we were straining our eyes to make out the features of our desert island, our attention was attracted to a still nearer object which suddenly gleamed out snowy white as the sun's rays fell on it, triangular in form and appearing like a small chalk rock, but too far off to be clearly distinguished. Gradually we approached this, and after a little doubt it proved to be no rock, but a sailing vessel of some kind. Then, with the aid of the binoculars, we made her out. She was a small schooner of foreign rig, evidently hailing from the Canaries or Madeiras, and she was sailing as we were, shaping a course direct for the island. We had seen no vessel for several days, and the appearance of this suspicious-looking craft caused some excitement on the alert. We call to mind the foreign fishermen who, according to rumor, occasionally visit this uninhabited archipelago. Was this one of their vessels? If so, there might be trouble ahead for us. We rapidly gained on the enemy, though we were engaged in a stern chase. This adventure put my crew in lively spirits, and I think that some of them began to half-imagine themselves to be bold privateers of the olden days after a Spaniard or a Frenchman. Gradually we approached the great salvage, which, lying between us and the pitons, concealed the latter from our view. Its appearance was very different from what we had expected. We had come to the conclusion, I know not for what reason, that we should find an island consisting for the most part of great sand hills, but there was not the smallest patch of sandy beach to be seen anywhere. Sheer from the sea rose great rocks of volcanic formation, dark and rugged, 
and though we were still several miles off we could perceive that the sea was breaking heavily on every part of the weather coast for we could hear the booming of the rollers and see the frequent white flash of the foam against the black cliff sides but above these precipices toward the centre of the island there was a plateau or rather an undulating green down with one steep green dome dominating all looking very fresh and pleasant to eyes that for two weeks had only gazed at the monotonous plains of the sea as i have already explained my informant from exeter was of the opinion that the prometheus people were wrong in digging on the shores of the great salvage and that the treasure had been concealed on the great piton or middle island we decided in the first place to come to an anchor off the great salvage and after having explored that island to sail for the great piton according to the admiralty charts there are two anchorages off the great salvage one in the east bay and one in the south bay we accordingly steered so as to coast down the east side of the island and thus open out both of these inlets at midday we were not quite a league astern of the schooner she was so close under the north point of the island when suddenly she hauled her wind and steered in a westerly direction seemingly for the open sea so we came to the conclusion that our excitement had been groundless and that in all probability we should not be troubled by inquisitive foreigners during our explorations at the salvages we soon found that it was necessary to exercise considerable caution while approaching this island nearly two miles away from it there was a shoal over which the sea was breaking heavily we passed between this and the island as directed by the chart and kept close under the shore where the dark violet of the deep sea was changed for the transparent green of comparatively shallow water here again we had to pick our way through outlying rocks and shoals one of these shoals is particularly dangerous for as there is some depth of water over it the sea only occasionally breaks and for a quarter of an hour at a time there is nothing to indicate the danger so that a vessel might through inadvertence be taken right on to it when we were close to it the sea happened to break and the sight was a lovely yet a terrible one a huge green roller very high and steep suddenly rose as if by magic from the deep then swept over the shoal and when it reached the shallowest part its crest hung over forming a cavern underneath through whose transparent roof the sun shone with a beautiful green light and lastly the mass overtopping itself fell with a great hollow sound and was dashed to pieces in a whirl of hissing foam had the old alert been there at that moment her end would have come swiftly and perhaps ours too the chart seems to mark these rocks and breakers very correctly and there is small danger of falling a victim to them if proper precautions are observed besides which the water is so clear that one can see through it many fathoms down and a man in the cross trees with an eye experienced to the work could always detect a danger in good time we rounded the northeast point and opened east bay we did not like the look of the anchorage there which is in ten fathoms and we could see no good landing nor any signs of a sandy beach so we sailed on and doubled the southeast point and the shoals that extend some way from it suddenly opening out south bay the one in which it seems that the prometheus came to an anchor and then to our astonishment we beheld a very unexpected sight rolling easily on the green ocean swell at some three cable lengths from the shore lay a small schooner at anchor 
her crew half-naked bronzed and savage-looking lot were engaged in stowing her mainsail she was evidently the same schooner that we had seen outside while we had been coasting around the east side of the island she had followed the west side and here we had met again but she was not the only surprise in store for us there were no sandy dunes in this bay its shores were steep and rocky and on either side reefs on which the sea broke protected the anchorage to some extent at the head of one picturesque cove wherein was evidently the best landing place were two small huts put together of rough stones from the beach and from these a footpath wound up the bare volcanic cliffs to the green plateau some four hundred feet above a quantity of barrels were being quickly landed here from one of the schooner's boats and several other wild-looking men were carrying these up to a cavern a little way up the rocks behind the huts the whole formed a wild and fantastic picture it was just such a scene as salvator rosa would have delighted to paint it would have suited the savage austerity of his style the rugged cove might well have been the haunt of smugglers or pirates and who we wondered were these people and what were they doing these were mysterious proceedings for a desert island the evident labor of the men while carrying the barrels proved to us that they were very heavy perhaps suggested one of us perhaps we have just arrived at the right moment to interrupt another band of pirates in the act of hiding another immense treasure this would have been almost too great a stroke for my band of adventurers it would have been very pleasant to have saved ourselves all the trouble of digging and to have simply carried off the evilly earned hoard of these wicked men and divided it amongst our virtuous selves we had sanguine men on board whom no failure disheartened despite their invariable habit of counting their chickens before they were hatched so i was not surprised to be now asked by the sportsmen of our party how long i thought it would take us to get back to england when i had replied he evinced great satisfaction oh that is all right then he said we can get this stuff on board and be back home just in time for the pheasant shooting and after that we can fit out again and fetch our other treasures we came to an anchor in seven fathoms of water a short distance outside the schooner it was not the sort of roadstead i should like to remain long in for an iron-bound shore was before us and around were numerous shoals on which the rollers kept up a perpetual hullabaloo a nasty trap to be caught in should the wind suddenly veer to the southward it was after one o'clock when we brought up so we decided to go below and dine before doing anything else and the conversation at table became more piratical in its tone than ever after the details of how we were to enrich ourselves despite all obstacles had been thoroughly discussed each of the adventurers explained in which way he would spend his share of the booty how it should be invested was of course far too prosaic a matter for his consideration End of chapter five